Well, happy Father's Day again. We keep saying it. Uh, and today is an exciting day for us because we have bring a car show to a kid day. Notice the wording a little different. Because of COVID-19, we are doing a parade with the car show. We still have the prizes, the whole thing. Check gpac.life for the parade route. It's down a little bit of layers there and you'll find it. And uh, join us. Uh, in fact, I even have a car that I registered to take in. Wasn't quite ready, but I thought if you're standing 20 feet away, it'll look good. It'll be okay. So I hope you come up. And like Caleb said, even in lockdown, we still had two people pray to receive Christ. That's God. That's God doing incredible things. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we go to your word, I want to thank you, God. I just had a quick look and I saw the last two Sundays with Caleb and Pastor Rod uh, preaching. Uh, over 900 people viewed the sermon after Sunday morning. Uh, God, you are a good God. I believe our church and our reach, your church, your reach is increasing because of this time, oh God. If somebody's watching online, may they experience your revelation today. May they experience your Holy Spirit today. May they experience your presence. And God, would you just anoint me? Would your word come alive? And we know the promise of the word. It says that it will not return void. And we stand on that promise. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen. So this morning, we're going to be in the book of Hosea, so you can get your fingers there. Well, it's a little bit of a disclaimer, because I think I only read about three or four verses. And uh, part of that is because last time I preached, I think I read about half a book of the Bible. And I thought, well, I need to change it up a bit. I might have put some people to sleep with all that reading. But anyway, but turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. And uh, I came across some articles this week that are kind of really interesting. And uh, it, it, they, they were really, they, they referred to a book by a historian by the name of Tom Holland. And uh, this guy's an atheist, just to let you know. And he wrote a book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Now, as I read the couple of different commentaries on his book, I didn't read the book and I probably should, but the commentaries, this, this atheist talked about how Christianity, above all other sex religions and movements, had something unique. And he described the cross, that pivotal point where Christians believe that God did something to change the world. Oh, and he even goes into it, apparently, about how, yeah, you know, atheists and naturalists and whoever else, they can say, oh, we would have got to this point of uh, accepting every race is equal and every people is equal. But he argues he doesn't think we would. Why would we? Why would we go there? Why would we think that way? But Christianity changed everything. I don't know why we get surprised by these things. We shouldn't get surprised because we know that Jesus has changed us. And you've heard my story that even in recent months, God took away some claustrophobia I had. God uh, has done some other soul wound healing. And we have testimonies throughout Grand Prairie in the world, not just in our church, where God is on the move and changing hearts and changing lives. So I don't know where you're at this morning but I hope you can really, really enjoy the book of Hosea and his story. So turn in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 1, and we're going to read just verse 2. Now, I find it interesting because Hosea, as this book is being read, doesn't take very long 
to get right to the crux, right to the, the heart of what the book's going to be about. And if you read this, it's verse 2b, and it says, this is God speaking to Hosea, go, marry a promiscuous woman, and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of an unfaithfulness to the Lord. This is basically the gist or the entire story in the book of Hosea. It kind of jumps back and forth between Hosea and Israel. And Hosea the prophet prophesies to Israel using his own life and his own example. And if you were to read the rest of chapter 1, chapter 2 kind of goes into some prophecy about Israel. Chapter 3 goes back to Hosea's life. And bottom line, what happens is this promiscuous wife, they have three children right off the bat. Oh, and I love this part. I had to point it out. Uh, these three children, God tells them to name the first one a boy, Jezreel. And in verse 4b, he says, Because I will soon punish the house of Jehu, now that's the northern kingdom king, for the massacre at Jezreel. Now, doesn't matter what that massacre was, commentaries went all over the map as I looked it up. But the bottom line, Jehu didn't seem to learn the lesson. He didn't seem to get it that bloodshed isn't God's way. That that is something that's just not in the heart of God. Like we can't treat people unfairly. And then he has a daughter and her name's Le-Rahuma, which means not loved. So how would you like that? Uh, Jezreel, not loved, come for dinner. And then he has another third child, a son, named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. So you can imagine, you know, calling the kids, Jezreel, not loved, not my people, come to dinner. And uh, I, I've often, I sat there and thought, well, how did they get through life? And, you know, I've heard weird things of names people have called their children. But those are kind of right out there. But understand, the prophet, and most often the prophets, not only did they prophesy words of God, but they often had to do bizarre things to get people's attention. And why is that? Because we are a people that get so used to our thinking, our circumstances, our way of life, our culture, that we don't see the truth. We don't see what's really honestly going on. We don't seem to understand and get who God is. Uh, we kind of fashion him into a, a person like we think would be, like a, like a forgetful old man like the movies often portray him as. Now, if you were to read Hosea, you would see that this promiscuous wife is constantly sneaking off, spending the night with guys, and at one point, basically, Hosea gives up on her. Some would argue he set her aside or divorced her. And then you find, if you're reading in Hosea, God tells him, go buy your wife back. Go purchase her back. Bring her into your home. Love her. Respect her. And, and so Hosea does that, literally kind of locking her up. But in the whole process, of course, she runs off, he rescues her. She runs off, he rescues her. This book of Hosea, it really is all about a husband's love for his wife. It's really about... Um, a father's love, God the Father's love for his nation Israel. And it really is about God's love for us. 
And more than anything, it's an object lesson. It's like an illustration. It's like an eye open. It's like a, a window into the truth, like going outside and looking inside to see what's going on. And I, I kind of think of, a, you know, the good Christmas carol story where uh, Ebenezer has to look in on what's really going on. It kind of blows away his perceptions of, of Tiny Tim or whatever the guy's name that was crippled, the little boy. And, and he kind of looks in and he goes, oh my goodness, what's really going on? And, and this book is a book for us to get God, to get us, to, to understand sort of the realities of what's going on. We, we get so comfortable as to where things are and where we're at. Now, this is going to surprise you, and trust me, it's not the end of the sermon yet, but I want to jump right to the last chapter of Hosea now. And the first, first two verses is sort of like reading the conclusion before you've read the book. But at the very last verses, now this isn't the whole thing, but I just want to read these two verses because after God, and by the way, in the book you see that God, and you will see this throughout Scripture, God often will will take a small thing to try to turn people back around and, and understand this is like God the husband or God the father looking down on his children and, and saying, oh man, they're destroying themselves. They're, they're eating themselves up. They're, they're making such bad choices. Don't they see what this is going to do to them? The, the cause and effect and, and all the misery and the destruction of societies and governments. Oh, I got to help them. I got to reach down. And, and we often look at God. Oh, he's such an ogre. He's such a taskmaster. But that's not the God you read about in the Bible. God starts with kind of little things to try to lure us and draw us back and, and Israel. And then he gets to, to worse and worse and worse. And the prophecies increase and the intensity increase because, not because God's trying to be a mean ogre, a nasty guy. It's because of his love for us. It's because of his love for us. So this passage of Hosea chapter 14 verse 1 says, Return Israel. To the Lord your God. This has been repeated over and over. This promiscuous nation, this nation that uh, soaks up and brings in and, and does all these adulterous things and worships other gods and, and does these horrific uh, rituals that just have nothing to do with the way God created us. Your sins have been your downfall. Your sins have been your downfall. Verse 2. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, listen to this, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Did you hear that? Forgive us. Receive us. Why? So that we will be fruitful so that we will be what God created us to be. We will have joy and peace and prosperity, literally, because we are listening and serving God. As I thought about God and Hosea, I began to think about my own view of God and how it's changed over the years. Now, many of us, and if you followed along any of the things that Kayla put on her uh, gpac.life and Facebook, she posted stuff about how, depending how we were brought up, if we had a father that was a little distant, and maybe he was very strict and not very loving, we tend to filter a look at God that way. Or maybe you had a father who was just absent. We think God's absent, doesn't care. 
Or maybe you had a father that was just so loving and kind and never, ever demanded a thing of it. Well, you think of God that way. So I started thinking about how has my view of God changed? And that thinking actually even began to develop even further. And I started thinking about people my age. Now I'm 59. I technically, they call me a baby boomer. Now, in fact, I have some young people in the church, they say, uh, you know, they tease me and say, okay, boomer, okay, boomer. You know, why do they say that? Because we have certain things we think about now. There's generalities about boomers. There's generalities about millennials. So, by the way, millennials can kind of be split in half in kind of two different groups in thinking. And then there's the Gen Z and the Gen X. I'm a boomer. I think more like a Gen X. Anyway, don't want to get into all that kind of stuff. But I started thinking about people my age. How did they think about God? What kind of goes through their head? Now, most of us, honestly, we, we, we were brought up in a more traditional, by the builders, a more traditional background. I mean, if I was bad, I knew what pain was. If I uh, misbehaved, my parents at times would use shame. Now, there's a difference between guilt and shame, and we're going to get into that in a bit. <clears throat> but that's kind of my view of God. You know, I would often define myself for what I thought I was. In other words, no way God could love me because I do this sin or that sin. And I would sort of define myself and say, I wished I could be like Pastor Rod or Pastor Caleb or whatever. I, I would always compare. And my parents would do that. You should be like your brother or you should be like whoever it is. As I was thinking about this, I started thinking about how the older crowd tends to see God as sort of more um, guilt and shame as motivations to serve God and obey your parents. And we tend to see God's love in a whole kind of wrong way. It's conditional. I started thinking about Gomer, Hosea's wife. And I wonder what she thought of Hosea when he rescued her and cleaned her up. Now, she probably had shame. She probably even felt guilty but didn't know what to do with it. She probably said, this is who I am. I can't help it. How dare you? I was born this way or whatever she might have been thinking. I don't think she received Hosea's advances the way you maybe think she did. I, I think maybe initially it's like, yeah, this has been awful. I'm hungry. This guy's been beating me, whatever it is. Oh, thank you, Hosea. But, but pretty soon she was drawn back into who she had defined herself as. This is important stuff to be thinking as a follower of Christ. How are you defined? Are you defined by the love of God and his care for you? Do you know who he is and who you are in Christ? These are important things. Then I thought of the younger generations. So I sat down with some millennials. Okay, they were related to me, so a little bit tainted. And I kind of started to ask them, how do you see God? Because I thought, well, I'm a boomer and I kind of was raised in a certain context. I tend to see God in a certain way, although that's changed a lot. So I asked them how they see God. And I explained that my age sees God as loving but demanding. And I said, I think millennials tend towards loving and forgiving. And then I asked, how could I communicate God's love as calling us to repentance and wholeness? You know, this is kind of like 
a different generation seeing things a little different way. And honestly, they do. Most of them see God as loving and forgiving, and he is that. But we know that God is going to draw us out of our sin and into the wholeness that he's created us to be. Their answer was profound. I was actually pleasantly surprised. They said that I needed to explain to their generation the difference between guilt and shame. So here I go. Listen to this statement. The fear of the Lord is a requirement to experience God's ongoing love. The fear of the Lord, now you're going as a younger gen, oh, the fear of the Lord, you know, you're just going to talk about God being this ogre in the sky. That's not what the fear of the Lord is, by the way. You know, I think in the English, the translators didn't know what to do with the original Hebrew and Greek words. And it's the best they could come up with. But the fear of the Lord is literally an immense respect Knowing how absolutely God is, that he is the creator and the most powerful. He is not stuck in time. He knows the beginning and the end. This is God. This is somebody that you ultimately and incredibly need to respect. And he loves you. And we need to kind of get this kind of huge, big, monstrous respect for God. So what did you think when I read that? James 4.8, listen to how it puts this kind of understanding. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Hmm, kind of cool. Uh-oh, wait, there's a little bit of caveat. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Ouch. So the boomers were going, oh yeah, we get that verse, that's okay. And the millennials are going, is that sure? You, that's in the, you're misunderstanding that. So how does James say we come near to God? We come near to God through repentance from sin so that when we knowingly continue our sinful and disobedient ways, we demonstrate that there is no fear of the Lord before our eyes and we move away from his presence. And here's the catch. When we are away from his presence, we don't experience God's love. This doesn't mean he doesn't love us, but we are away from the place where he can experience his pleasure in us. Are you hearing that? In the article that I was referring to at the beginning, where this atheist wrote a book, and this atheist really laid out clearly that our society has actually thrived. Individuals have thrived in God's love and in his truth, drawing us into this great kind of society that we have. This is, by the way, not just this random nefarious truth, but this is truth about us. Adulterous us. And it's truth about him. He is God, and we must fear him. He loves us. So it's not a kind of fear like you would do somebody who's nasty and unpredictable, but it's a God who's incredible and cares for you. And like Hosea, wants to draw you out of your sin and your brokenness and your bad thinking, and he wants to clean you up, and he wants to set you on a path. Proverbs 9.10 puts it this way. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Did you hear that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. 
The fear of the Lord, friends, is a requirement to experience God's ongoing love. Fear is not what we think. Fear is deep, deep respect. Without acknowledging or even understanding God and who he really is, we will not experience his love. All we will experience in this life wrecked is, this, uh, is a life wrecked with bad choices filled with shame. Now let's kind of focus back on that guilt and shame stuff. Often when we focus on areas of sin and failure, feelings of guilt and shame can begin to stir up inside of us. Well, you've probably read Romans 1, that God is out there and he's explaining to us who we should be and who we actually are. Satan, the accuser, however, never misses an opportunity to move in with his condemning voice. Oh, a little sidebar. Pastor Lauren and Pastor Michael, they did a parenting video on uh, shame and guilt. Oh, they do a really good job. Go to gpac.life, watch that. It is important to bring an understanding of the distinction between guilt and shame and how each of these elements impact our lives. Now, looking at guilt. Guilt is how we feel about the things we have done that were wrong. Guilt is a normal, honest response of our conscience. Guilt by itself is not a bad thing. It is better to feel guilty when we have done wrong than to have no conscience at all and no sense of right and wrong. However, is the accusing voice of the enemy telling us how bad we have been and how unworthy we are? Is the enemy basically saying, that is who you are, that's your definition, nothing will change, you are doomed? It is very different from guilt or conviction. Although conviction, which comes from God, is accompanied by a sense of wrong, it always invites us to forgiveness and reconciliation. Do you get the difference? God is always convicting, always pointing out, giving us truth. He's showing us who we are. And Hosea, in his life, was a beautiful illustration of the reality what Israel had become. But you see, the difference between Satan and God, when, when God convicts, he reconciles. He draws us in. He loves us. He cleans us up. Satan condemns. He gives us shame. He says, that's who you are. And on the other hand, shame, which comes from Satan, is intended to make us feel unworthy of God's forgiving love and grace. Don't let him do that. Shame is when we believe our sin is who we are. Of course, we try to normalize sin, right? We try to minimize the shame. We try to say, this is how everybody lives. I'm no worse than anybody else. I'm so glad to say, because I had to, I read my Bible when I was a fairly young teen, I knew enough that when I spoke to my children about something they did wrong, I would explain to them that I loved them always. Nothing would ever stop me. Who they were was so awesome. I would say, Brian or Shay or Kylie or Josh, I love you. This thing you've done, this isn't who you are. This is the thing I'm concerned about. And I would explain to them they were not defined by the sin. Yet I invited them to admit the wrong so that we could be reconciled, so that they could change their behavior and they could carry on in my love. 
God convicts and invites us to repent. And he does this out of love. Is it starting to get a little clearer yet? Shame is, on the other hand, how we feel about ourselves or how we see ourselves because of the wrongs we have done or because of things that have happened to us, such as sexual abuse or violation. Shame clouds our countenance and makes us want to hang our head and hide ourselves from God and from people. Shame says, I am bad. God says, you are loved. For most of us, guilt and shame were reinforced from an early childhood. Shame on you, our parents maybe would say. You were naughty and bad. You should be ashamed of yourselves. And Satan, of course, seeks to take advantage of our sensitivity to guilt and shame. He beats us, he beats on us continually with the lying voices of condemnation. He wants us to feel and believe we are evil and unworthy. If we have been abused or violated, he wants to make us feel dirty and damaged. He wants us to feel we need to hide from God like Adam and Eve hid amongst the trees because of their guilt and shame. He wants us to feel we need to hide from people as well. If they knew what kind of person I really am, if people knew what I actually did, if they knew how I think. When guilt and shame take a hold of us, everything we hear and everything that happens to us gets filtered through the guilt of unworthiness. It literally affects how we see things and our ability to function in every facet of our lives. God does not want us living under this cloud of condemnation. He cares about you. He loves you. Listen to Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation. Here's a caveat. To those who are in Christ Jesus, do you know who you are in Christ? It goes on to say, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let me unpack that for a little bit. What Romans 8, 1 is saying is, God is inside of you. The Holy Spirit is inside of you. He's your counselor. He will convict you. He will help you uh, get to the right path. He loves you. The, the real you, the created you, the one who God made you to be. And he will give you the uh, power and the ability on the inside to overcome. So my relationship with my dad was never really great. I mean, I see pictures of myself, and when I see the pictures, I actually can see what I was thinking. I, I just felt so distant from my dad. And I think out of all my family, I was the only one that dad, dad actually called me stupid. He called me an idiot. And I want to be honest, I think I probably deserved it because I did some really silly things. Uh, he did do some shaming of me. But honestly, a lot of it, you know, it was a two-way street. Yes, he was the dad and he was responsible. And when my teenage years hit, my testosterone as it rose up, it, it pushed so hard against my dad. And you've probably heard me say, he kicked me out of the house twice as a teenager. I just didn't leave. And he never pushed it too far. In my 20s, and again, because I read my Bible, I began to fully reconcile with God in relationship. I began to understand who he was. I began to experience his love. I began to experience his transformation. My thought life improved. And I began to understand what was right and wrong in me 
and in the world around me. And I experienced God's drawing guilt or conviction. And I experienced wholeness as I came to him in repentance. And even more, I experienced a relationship, a Holy Spirit on the inside welling up. It didn't take me long. And I realized that I had to reconcile, reconnect with my dad and ask God, what do I do to fix this? God said to me, you need to respect your dad. You need to fear your dad. And I said, well, how do I do that? And I remember it seemed so simple, but God just said, go ask his advice. And I remember I was unemployed and I didn't know what to do. I was 20 years old had car payments, and I said, Dad, what do I do? And he gave me such incredible advice. You can't believe it. I won't even go into the details there, but here, but it was such good advice that my respect, my, my fear of my dad rose up, and I began to connect with him like you would believe. I got so excited, I started phoning him and asking his advice. I, I started seeing my dad in a whole different light. I began to see that he actually wasn't as stupid as I thought he was. He actually is a pretty great guy, and I began to communicate that to him. My siblings tell me that in the later years that dad had so much love for me, and I, I take that as a badge of honor from Jesus. I can tell you that the time, by the time my dad passed away, 15 years ago, we had become friends. You will not be disappointed in drawing near to God. He loves you. He wants to help you. He does not shame you. He convicts and draws us to reconcile. It's beautiful. The elders in our church, we just finished a lesson, a church renewal lesson on the fear of the Lord. And one of the elders said, oh, we need to preach this to the people. But I'm not preaching that per se. But listen to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5, and it declares this whole concept and idea this way. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? I read that and I went, oh, I need a word of encouragement that addresses you. Of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. And that, you could stop there and go, oh, that's that baby boomer God again. But here comes the millennial God. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Hosea was told by God to go love his wife, to redeem her, to restore her, to bring her back in. To be reconciled to God, we must first face who we are, like Israel the promiscuous. He is God and we are not. We have been tainted by sin. We will only achieve wholeness when we have an abiding relationship with God. God loves you. And I have a little shock for some of us. If you're not being disciplined, if you're not being refined by fire and convicted of sin, maybe you're not born again. And if you want to experience his love, let me just ask you, repent and believe. Jesus Christ, that, that cross moment that the atheist understood, that has changed everything for you. Receive him. Today's Father's Day, and we're commanded to honor our dad, so it will go well with us. Have you read that? This is a quote of a Deuteronomy passage. Ephesians 6, 2 says, honor your father and mother. 
and I could say respect them, which is the first commandment with a promise. Do you see the cause and effect? This is not legalism. This is a relationship. Legalism is based on no relationship. It's based on rules. It's based on reg regulations. In a relationship, or should I say, in an apprenticeship, we learn from the master. We learn from God. Now, in my life, even at my age, I say, I want to be a better human being. I want to be more godly. I want to be less sinful. I want to be, have a clearer and purer mind. And I often will look around and say, who can I learn from that's further along than me? Again, legalism, friends, it's misery. In our case, having been born again, we have the Holy Spirit inside us. He convicts us and he gives us power to do the right things. I came across a second article about historian Tom Holland's book by Jonathan Van Maren. And I think it's worth closing this message with her quote. While studying the ancient world, Holland writes, he realized something. Simply, the ancients were cruel and their values utterly foreign to him. Oh, and we love to idolize the Romans and the Senate and democracy's birth. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets of physical pleasure of those with power. Infanticide was common. The poor and the weak had no rights. So how did we get from here to there? How did we get from where we are to where we are today? It was Christianity, Holland writes. Christianity revolutionized sex and marriage, demanding that men control themselves and prohibiting all forms of rape. Christianity confined sexuality within monogamy. It is ironic, Holland notes, that these are now the very standards for which Christian Christianity is derided. Christianity elevated women. In short, Christianity utterly transformed the world. In fact, Holland points out that without Christianity, the Western world would not exist. Even the claims of the social justice warriors who despise the faith of their ancestors rest on a foundation of Judeo-Christian values. Those who make arguments based on love, tolerance, and compassion are borrowing fundamentally Christian arguments. If the West had not become Christian, Holland writes, no one would have gotten woke. Friends, wake up, O oh sleeper. It's time to repent. It's time to honor God. And you can start today, by the way, by honoring your mom and dad. But God loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And yeah, he might convict you or give you guilt, which leads to repentance, which leads to life. This is the way of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whether it's an older person or a younger person, as we look at the story of Hosea, it may actually be looking in the mirror to us. Many of us maybe are religious, but we don't have that relationship with the Father. We do not have the self-discipline to actually sit down with our mentor, the lover of our souls, to read his word, which is a light to our path, which, which convicts us of sin. It, it, it corrects us, changes us, reveals to us. And then in relationship, we, we repent. We say to God, we are sorry.
I am not defined by that sin. I know you love me. You love my, my created soul that you created me to, to, to be who I am today, to, to, to do good works. Oh God, forgive us for being so self-centered and selfish and influenced by our society and cause us, Heavenly Father, love, oh God, we receive it. We receive your love and, and would you let us experience a, a new level of relationship with you for we know you love us and you convict us, you don't shame us, but you draw us into repentance, into life. And you draw us into who you have created us to be. In Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen.